Hello, and welcome to Building Better, a podcast about the cities and human spaces we build worldwide that asks, how can we build better? My name is Christoph Lindner, and as well as being your host for this podcast, I'm the Dean here at UCL's Bartlett Faculty of the Built Environment. In each episode, I sit down with experts from the Bartlett and from the built environment sector to explore new ideas and solutions for some of the big issues that affect our daily lives, our societies, and our planet. In this episode, we're going to be talking about how to queer space. What does that mean? Is it even possible? It's a theme that we've touched on in our first ever episode when I spoke to Lowe Marshall about their research into LGBTQ plus nightlife. In today's conversation, I want to delve deeper into the question of what makes a space safe for LGBTQ plus people. And I want to really explore what it means to bring queerness into a space and our approach to building spaces. If you want to listen to the earlier interview with Lowe or any of our previous episodes, you can find them on our website. Today I am joined by Shan Shakobo Gotsi Baral, who is a third-year student on the new MSI Architecture Program here at the Bartlett and an urban design tutor at the Bartlett School of Planning. Shan has been researching the role of ephemerality in queer nightlife spaces, as well as the role of intimacy in creating queer spaces more generally. Shan received a Bartlett Travel Scholarship to research queer spaces in Athens last summer, where there is a burgeoning of queer organizations, events, and collectives in the city that are becoming increasingly popular. My second guest is Holly Buckle, a London-based artist and the LGBTIQ plus outreach lead at the Outside Project, an LGBTIQ plus community shelter and center. Their practice is rooted in research from queer pasts, centering around queer bodies for action today towards queer futures, with an emphasis on collaborative group work and installation. Holly was selected for the 2021-22 Adrian Carruthers Acme Studio Award and Henriquez Scholarship in recognition of excellence and achievement on the Fine Art Program at the Slade School of Fine Art here at UCL. So queer is a word that means different things to different people. And I'd like to begin by asking each of you, what does the word queer mean to you? Sean? Yeah, I mean, I think how you've introduced that by saying that it means different things to different people is, yeah, it's very important. Sort of the subjectivity of uh, queer spaces, what I, I think consider probably one of the most important factors in sort of understanding what they are. And if we think of sort of more normative spaces, I think there's a tendency to sort of be, have a quite an objective view on what they are and sort of defining them. And often, you know, with objectivity, it means that that's therefore defined by people that might have more power and more sort of more in charge, right? Whereas sort of queer spaces, they have, you know, this element of subjectivity where you can't sort of pin down 
what what queer space is and i think that's to be honest that's the sort of the beauty of it so you know you're sort of there's not it's sort of it's, it's sort of paradoxical because you're sort of trying to define what queer is but actually what i'm trying to say is queer is something that can't really be defined and it's sort of maybe down to each person's experience to to be able to define it because in defining the in define trying to define queer perhaps you're sort of you're de-queering something. That's a very inviting way to think about the word queer, that it resists definition, that it has a, there's a subversive quality and it's about not being in the box. That's fantastic. Holly, what about you? When you hear the word queer, what does it mean to you? When I think of queer, um, I think of queer as, uh, I guess it was like a slur for a long time, wasn't it? Um, it was used as as something that was, uh, you know, not a positive, and it's something that the queer community has taken back. So I think queer for me is about that action, the taking back, the reclaiming a word as our own, and I think that's really what queerness or queer means to me. You know, um, taking something and reclaiming it, using it for our own purposes that don't fit the purposes of maybe the majority of people who aren't queer. That emphasis on reclaiming um, sounds really important when we think about queer. So for me, I'd love to jump straight into the relationship between queerness and space. And we're hearing more and more in the field of of urban studies, architecture, design, uh, a lot more interest and conversation around queer space. And from your experience, what makes a space queer? So there's a quote um, from Sarah Ahmed that I think puts it um, from from queer phenomenology that I think puts it really well. She's a legend as well. Just big shout out to Sarah Ahmed, a really good writer. She says, the queer body is not alone. Queer does not reside in a body or object and is dependent on the mutuality of support. So for me, that's kind of thinking about, yeah, queer queer spaces rely solely on support, like they wouldn't exist if we didn't fundamentally support each other and work together to build them. What about Sean, for you? What makes a space queer in your experience? Yeah, I think for me, it's some, because coming from an architecture background, we're often... Mm-hmm when you're talking about types of spaces, they can be defined either by the materiality or sort of the how they use for what for what function or by whom. But I think when we talk about queer space, there's sort of that sort of categorization doesn't quite apply. And for me, queer spaces are those that are sort of they're formed by people and how people relate and sort of the values that that they might have, being open and engaging with other people and sort of being essentially engaging in sort of ways of relating that aren't perhaps normative. But I think in the, essentially queer spaces allow people to feel comfortable and excited. And I think if you're someone that, you know, you identify as queer and you're, you're in a space where you, you feel excited, then that too can become a queer space because it's encourage, encouraging you to sort of express your identity and to question your own identity and expand it. There's a really good book that came out called Queer Spaces by Adam Nathaniel Berman and Joshua Mardell. I think it was published by the RIBA. And it's really interesting. It's sort of like a, an atlas 
of queer spaces and one of them that I I really liked it was a train carriage and it was someone talking about their experience of going into the city and sort of getting ready putting on their makeup putting on their outfit and for them that was their experience of a queer space you know and in that they were probably alone or there might have been other people around them but they sort of created this little world that was always a different train carriage and it was always a different time of day but that was important in them sort of defining their identity. So I wonder if the phrase queering space has relevance in our conversation, because for me, it sort of suggests the idea that that any space could be transformed into having queer qualities or, or experiences, conditions. What are your thoughts on queering space? Is that, is, that a, is, that, is that a helpful way to think about the potential of a space? I think, do you know what is a really good example of this is um, the outside project where I work. And so we used to occupy a fire station. It was the first ever purpose-built fire station in London. And so obviously it was built very much for the purpose of being a fire station. And we had a community centre and shelter upstairs in that building. So what happened there was very much like kind of what I was saying about like the meaning of the word queer for me. It's like we took this space that, you know, was used for and designed for a completely different purpose. And I guess you could say we queered it, but we, it, you know, it didn't look like a fire station from the inside. It looked like a shelter and it looked like a kind of a, an LGBT centre. We had a library. We had a grand piano and a giant velour pink bed that Travis Alabanza gave us um, that kind of set the scene for downstairs and flags. Yeah, it it, it felt <laughs> very much like if, if you could queer a space, that's how you do it. There were placards and paint and it was often a mess but it was yeah it felt very much like even though there were not people in it all of the time particularly when we were there during lockdown the remnants of the people who had made it the space that it was kind of remained in in items and the arrangement of how we'd made it our own that sounds like an amazing transformation and it reminds me of the first ever episode of this podcast where we were talking about a research project that Lowe Marshall and others were involved in, studying and mapping the uh, queer spaces at night in, a, in the city of London, and their research showing that those spaces are disappearing at a very alarming rate. So in today's conversation, I'm already picking up from, from, from both of you that there's lots of ways and possibilities to queer space. But at the same time, we know that in many cities, and London is one example, there's also a lot of pressure on those spaces that makes them sometimes quite vulnerable or, or, or difficult to sustain. And so I'm wondering if you've come across in your own experience, whether it's in London or elsewhere, efforts to queer space that, that, that have not been successful. Are, 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 there, are there reasons why certain spaces don't survive or thrive as queer spaces? That's sort of a prime example of how gentrification is sort of pushing, pushing sort of a lot of people, including vulnerable communities out of cities. And I think it's, I mentioned this before, there's sort of there's one side of looking at it where you sort of think, okay, these queer spaces, this is sort of element of survival almost, of appropriating spaces because you are constantly, you know, you are not in sort of a normative fit-in-the-box uh, community. Therefore, 
you will always be the system. So if you're talking about sort of neoliberal system where it sort of encourages gentrification, you will never be almost like the winner in, in, in that. Therefore, you're always going to have to keep on moving and appropriating new spaces to sort of survive. And I've experienced that myself, you know, sort of in, in East London, you can see there's a lot of clubs, a lot of bars closing down. I, I wonder if there's a sort of a more, I guess, a more utopian maybe way of, of imagining queer spaces where they're not, I guess, on the back foot of, you know, this system, sort of our society that we live in. And then they're not always having to sort of adapt, even though that's sort of the beauty of them. But I wonder if there's, can you have a space that is inherently queer without have, without reacting you know, to sort of, it's outside, or perhaps that is the definition of queer. Yeah, I don't know. I think a bit of both, really. I think that there is room for us. Like, I, I feel like, of course, designing a building with a purpose in mind is like the ideal situation. But often, like, we inherit buildings that have been built for a, a different purpose for, for all sorts of reasons, you know. And I think... But of course, like that is something that we can we can kind of mold ourselves into whatever space we have out of necessity. But I also think that the importance of building by and for communities, like with that in mind, is really important and possible. Um, but it's about keeping the conversation with a wide section of the community it can't just be for one person or one model or the assumed model of a community like it has to be built with the community and that and that's I guess the way that it it would work I'd love to see more government funded queer purpose-built buildings with with the community being consulted on it the whole way through the process and I, I think that 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 could be something that that would you know change queer space or keep keeping people in in the conversation let's stay really optimistic for a moment let's imagine that uh i i i rep you know i work for the gla and i'm coming along and saying you know what we have uh, a whole pot of money we want to begin by by creating a a queer space of some sort what would be a starting place How, you know if, if you could design a space from a community grassroots kind of starting place to be a queer space what qualities would it need? What would that look like? How, how, how would that work? Do you have any ideas uh, to advise me as this government uh, official with lots of money? <laughs> I think you need to pay everyone properly. That's how, that's how we start this. Yeah, everyone gets paid. Every consultant gets paid properly. And I think, you know, that, that's a logistic, but that helps things to, to work. So that's the top of the list. And then I think beyond that, it's, you know, I'm one member of the community, so I couldn't possibly answer but for me, it, it would be that it was permanent, that it was safe, that it had an element of housing that wasn't just affordable as a buzzword. It was it was actually affordable. There'd be space for people who are in crisis. There would be, you know, the, the essentials that we need, water, clean running water and places we can cook. But do that in a way that is something that we can do together you know it's not just like you're in a in an isolated studio and and you're cooking on your own like it's something that can I guess the space would have a, a space that we could mutually cook and be together 
what, what I'm hearing in that, that sounds really important to you and that I find really compelling is you're putting a lot of emphasis on community. That's the starting place for your vision, but it's also what the space needs to create and sustain. A lot of togetherness, a lot of mutual support, a lot of community. And that seems like something that is increasingly desperately needed in our cities, where the kind of atomizing forces of contemporary development keep pulling us apart and weaponizing space, weaponizing housing. And it sounds like what you're describing, Holly, is, is, is kind of undoing th those, those dynamics and recentering, you know, putting community back at the center again. Sean, what about you? Anything that you would uh, uh, you would recommend for uh, designing a queer space from the ground up? Yeah, I mean, I, firstly, yeah, I, I echo everything Holly Holly said, and definitely pay everyone properly because that just allows people, you know, even people that might be more vulnerable to sort of to take part in these things. Because often, my experience with community work, it's that the loudest voices are the ones that are heard. And in that, there's a problem, you know, because perhaps your vo your voice is equally important if it's just, but it might just not be as loud for whatever reason. So I think it's important that there's community and diversity at every aspect of the design process. So in the designing of it, in the regulating of it, in the planning, uh, in the sort of in leading it. And then hopefully if, you know, there's queer people and people that are representative of the community where that building might be, it means that that will be then translated into sort of the outputs, you know, the sort of materiality, the layout of the building, how it's sort of managed, the contracts, the management. So I think it's sort of being sort of quite open to the process of producing the built environment and really considering it a product of the community and not sort of the heroic vision of an architect or, or of a council. Again, very compelling vision. I guess I'm wondering, is, is there a version of the future where queer space could be a financially exploitable space? So, you know, how, if, if we really want to keep community at, at the core, at the center of, of queer spaces that we might build, how do we protect them or do we need to protect them from their financialization, their, their exploitation? Well, yeah. I mean, if we can find a formula that, that, you know, these spaces don't become monetized, that would be ideal because like, if you find that, let me know, you know, <laughs> like, I just have no idea how in this city, in this climate, you could build anything and it not be monetized. I think, you know, you can do things to some degree. What we've built here is not, you know, it's not something that is going to be monetized, but that's because the same people are going to be at the, the helm of it. So it's having having people who are not going to be bought out. They're here for the community to provide a service that we wish that we had without those kinds of people or without the set of circumstances where you can continue to do something like the outside project then everything's open to monetization isn't it it's like that's the sad reality of it um, property and buildings are big business they're money you know so We've talked about queer community space, and I'm wondering, just to shift that a little bit, whether there can be such a thing as queer public space. Does that exist? What would that look like? How would that feel? 
Yeah, so when you say queer public space, I think the first question that anyone needs to ask themselves is like, what is public? Sort of uh, as an example, I was recently in Mexico and then there's this this market that is on uh, most evenings in the city centre, sort of formed by lots of stalls. But then there's a sort of, there's one particular corner of it, which is sort of, it's, I guess it's become queered, right? There's queer, trans people, gay people, they're sort of buying, selling, and then it, there's a sort of a whole community. So if you go there a few, a few nights in a row, you'll sort of recognise people there. And there's an element of publicness in that, in that it, it's, it's in an open space. I can only assume it belongs to sort of the council. But when you go in, you, you're almost sort of like you're entering, if you are queer, you're, you're entering a, set, a space that sort of feels sort of protected. It's almost like you're entering a room right? You sort of, you feel safe, you feel protected there. The language that you might use to sort of interact with people, there's a sort of a a shared sense of commonality. That's a great question you started with, you know, what is public space today? We also kind of live in an era of pseudo public space where you have private spaces, which try to present themselves as open and public. uh, But you also have public spaces that look very closed off and privatized, but they're not. And what all of these things have in common is the difficulty of, of, of reading space. You know, it, it, the legibility of space is increasingly complex. Holly, what do you think on the question of uh, whether we can create or there's value in trying to create more queer public space? If, if queer public space is is space where you know we can open up this kind of queer space for mutual support then of course public spaces can hold that i think if it's a public space that works towards like a common goal for like the majority of queer people and that that space is like centered around our most vulnerable or for people who like the writing table I guess is most far away so like centering centering access but not in a kind of bare minimum we have a disabled toilet and you can come here kind of way like then yeah sure any public space can can be queer and is there value in trying to keep that process of reclaiming subversion transformation you know going in a sort of iterative way so querying space is not something you do once it's something that maybe we do multiple times across many places yeah i think so i think you know there's going to be space that comes up and then is available and so an artwork that i made with residents at the outside project over lockdown included a podcast actually podcast talking about podcast and a podcast I know um but it it, um one of the guests in in that podcast put it really well I'm kind of quoting this this isn't verbatim so I'm really sorry to the person who actually said this but queer people or queerness is like little plants and we'll kind of make our way into the cracks or whatever spaces that there is available and grow and grow and grow and that kind of resonated really well with me that wherever the space is and if it's somewhere that we can occupy then I think yeah of course of course we can do that time and time again 
But I think that we should actually be pushing for more. There should be spaces built for us with us in mind, you know, and with us in the conversation. Like, I'm going to go back to that again. And I feel like it is part of (laughs) another thing that they said in this podcast is that it's part of the job description of a queer person is that adaptability adaptability is part of our job description but actually I think the world needs to adapt to our needs and we've spent a long time adapting so the world needs to start to adapt with us in the conversation and I think the world isn't quite sort of it's definitely not there yet in how we view this you know you think about uh, if you, you talked before about protecting queer spaces and you know, for example, our view on heritage is quite static, really. Uh, if you want to protect a space, okay, it has to be listed, it goes through a process and it's listed. But how do queer spaces fit into that? Spaces that sort of shift and become queer, then they're not, they, you know, then they might have a, a big influx years later of queer people that are using it. How do sort of systems or, or policies that we have to protect spaces, how can they adapt to how queer people use them because I think at the moment they they don't and I think another issue that raises is about queerness being commercialized is what we said before and you know you see it now with parts of Soho a lot of rainbow flags and uh, gay pride it's become this like huge commercial enterprise and it's just yeah I think it's just a very important consideration that we have this sort of this dynamism that doesn't let what made a space or an area beautiful sort of let it consume itself. So with that word dynamism in mind, let, let me come to my, my last question, because we always end each episode by asking our guests uh, the key question. And uh, I'd like to ask you, looking towards the future, what do you think we need to do to build better? I'm going to go back to the paying people properly thing. Yeah, (laughs) that's the most important thing, to pay people fairly and properly and without huge disparity. And I think that is the most important thing, right? We we can't avoid the monetization of of building or any of these things, but to pay people properly, to stop asking people to work for free or do things for free. I think we need, as a given, like, at the top of the list is for everybody to have somewhere that is safe and reliable to live that is actually affordable I think that's the fundamental right that's what we need we need to tackle housing as the big big thing I think if if anything as a takeaway from this to build back better is that we need to kind of put that to the forefront queer spaces are important but houses and homes for queer people that are secure and places that they would choose and want to live are the most fundamental things in a future that I would want to see. And Sean, what are your thoughts on how do we build better? Often, you know, we talk about sustainability and that's very much just seen environmentally and you know relating to sort of the, the built form of things but we often don't take into account the so the social sustainability of an area we're thinking how will the people that live there today how will they be able to grow there and how will successive generations be able to sort of flourish and you know make sure that their identity is protected uh in a space where they feel sort of feel in, comfortable and excited to be there but i think something that i've always thought is that i think we need more 
diversity in at local government level this is often in like an area that sort of it's not talked about much but there's an incredible amount of power that sort of determines it determines sort of the livelihood of queer people and of marginalized communities local government there determine where houses are built the licensing hours of bars of clubs uh, where community centers are built the opening times that kind of thing and often the people involved at that level aren't fully representative of the communities that they serve because you know there's I think maybe again what Holly's saying to be you know a local councillor you require you know I don't think it's a paid position but you need a certain amount of time and connections and if we had people with uh, more diversity involved in local government I think that could make a huge amount of difference. Thank you to both of my guests for joining me today. You have been listening to Building Better, the Bartlett podcast. This podcast was presented by myself, Christoph Lindner, and brought to you by the Bartlett, UCL's Faculty of the Built Environment. It was edited by Karis Bradley and featured music from Blue Dot Sessions. I was joined today by Shan Shakobo Gotsi Baral and Holly Buckle. If you would like to hear more of these podcasts, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk slash Bartlett slash Building Better. And of course, you can follow us at the Bartlett UCL. See you next time.